And so it's almost like psychotherapy can be the kind of groundwork for the beginnings of the spiritual journey. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Mark Vernon, the author of the new book, Dante's Divine Comedy, A Guide for the Spiritual Journey. Mark is a psychotherapist and writer interested in spirituality and inner life. He has a PhD in ancient philosophy as well as degrees in physics and theology. You can learn more about Mark's work at markvernon.com. In the conversation, Mark and I discuss psychotherapy and the spiritual path, why the way down can be the way up, the role of guides on the spiritual path, how the divine comedy can change our perception, wisdom in daily life, and so much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. Mark's website has lots of videos and resources for wisdom, so I encourage you to check it out. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Mark Vernon. Well, Mark Vernon, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you very much for inviting me to have a conversation. Well, I've, I've been looking forward to this one. We've have, had it scheduled for a little bit. And today we're going to be talking about your book, Dante's Divine Comedy, A Guide for the Spiritual Journey. Uh, I've really enjoyed it a little bit longer than I expected. So I'm about halfway through it and I'm uh, slowly but surely really enjoying it. Before we get into the book, though, we generally take a few minutes and discuss a bit about your path in life. Could you share um, maybe what initially got got your search started? Well, I was born uh, into a family that was Christian um, in the Anglican sense. Um, So my father was a Church of England clergyman. And we went to church and so on. And it, it framed our lives. And I always found it meaningful in one way but it's taken me quite a long time to actually really feel I can own my relationship to that Christian side Um, and it did involve a period of leaving the church feeling I was breathing the fresh air of well not quite atheism I don't think I was ever really quite an atheist but certainly agnosticism and um, then finding a way back in um largely through um, studying Plato, actually. I did a PhD on Plato, and that helped me a lot. And then particularly with making contact with the more mystical traditions of Christianity. And um, that then started to make a fuller sense to me rather than um, the more church-going, social um, side of Christianity, which is often how it comes at you, certainly in the UK these days, if it comes to you at all, which um, it Mm -hmm. does less and less, in fact. So let me ask, as you mentioned right there, Mark, you've got a PhD in in philosophy. You said there was a focus on Plato. You're also a psychotherapist. Um, What's what's the order? Which came first? How did this all come to be? 
Well, so I was I I was actually ordained in the church. I mean, that's how far I went with it. But I only lasted about three years and then had a kind of breakdown, really. Um, uh, it didn't work out for me at all. Um, and that set me on a, a route which led to the PhD on Plato because I was kind of looking for a, a, a worldview um, and a way of engaging with these things in a serious way. And so the PhD provides a framework for that. And But during that time, I realized that, to my mind, modern academic philosophy is nothing like ancient Greek philosophy. And that if you want to capture something of the spirit in a modern guise for what people like Plato and others were doing, psychotherapy offers a much um, closer fit because they felt that you can't know about reality unless you are able more and more to resonate with reality. And so therefore, that means working on yourself and not just working on your capacity to handle logic or win arguments, which is mostly what academic philosophy is about, um, but um, to open yourself to become more porous to reality. Um, And that means understanding where you're blocking it off, what your defences are, um, where you're afraid as much as what you love. Um, And so psychotherapy opened up to me. And it was also a kind of catch up by that stage because I'd had this breakdown when I left the church and hadn't really understood what was going on. And so um, it was a good time to do that as well. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you you sharing some some background. I've got a question for you around psychotherapy. I, I've been getting into some of your talks and different conversations that you've had uh, along with the, the book. And I heard you mention in another conversation that maybe psychotherapy could be viewed as a bit of prep work for the, the spiritual journey. Um, you know, what would you say, if you had to narrow it down, what might be the prerequisites to embark on a spiritual journey? Well, I think that if you have personal issues, then that can block a wider spiritual perception because there are kind of no-go areas in your most immediate interiority that mean either you're you're consciously or less consciously preoccupied with those blocks and so might try and use spirituality to bypass them or overcome them or alternatively it may just be they're like blind spots and um, so you can't engage with what the spiritual adepts tell us of wider reality And so it's almost like psychotherapy can be the kind of groundwork um, for the beginnings of the spiritual journey. And in fact, you know, this isn't actually a novel thing because, for example, in the early Christian monastic period, becoming an aspirant or becoming a novice was largely about doing the personal work. Um, And in fact, in the deserts of Egypt, the young monk or nun um, or equivalent would be told to perhaps go and practice some stoic exercises for a year or two first, and then to sort of come back and and begin the fuller Christian work. Um, And whilst I don't think psychotherapy just stops at that point, I think it can then become very um, much a part of integrating the wider whole as well, because um, that takes its own 
um, effort um, and understanding and insight and so on. Um, but nonetheless, it's something about doing the groundwork that then can really help the spiritual expansion. It's really interesting. And, and you have, as you've mentioned already, a bit of a diverse background in, in interest. How would you say exploring different wisdom traditions, whether it be philosophical or spiritual, is, is a good use of time and, and might help your particular chosen path? Well, I was greatly helped not just by psychotherapy, but also by the Buddhist practices that were coming into the West, particularly mindfulness. And I did a, um, a three-year mindfulness training, so quite a sustained one, which was very helpful. It got me to relate to my inner self in a way that was complementary to the psychotherapy. Um, it brought in practices as well as the habit of going to see an analyst, as I did. And that was useful. But it, for me... Certainly Western Buddhism, or at least the secular appropriation of it, also had its limits because it felt too much about me, myself, and I. And mm. I wanted to, I realized, know much more about relating to the inner life of all things, not just my own inner life. And, you know, whilst mindfulness will include loving kindness practices and so on, it, it didn't feel quite enough and so then that led me to traditions from Advaita Vedanta the non-dual side of Indian philosophy stroke spiritual practice and there the sense that all things were ultimately one when seen aright and moreover that oneness was divine um, had huge appeal for me and then that was a precursor to re realizing that this was present in the Christian tradition as well, in figures like Meister Eckhart. Um, actually, I think even going right back to St. Paul and Jesus, you can read scripture and see that that is present there. Um, but it's not the, certainly not the dominant and not even a very present strain in Church of England religiosity, um, which is much more focused on community um, social justice, um, with the worship of God, um, of course, but um, with the sense that this is heavily mediated through priests and rituals and traditions. And, you know, what, whilst that's all got value, this is part of the trouble that it has got value too, but I increasingly felt it, it hindered a more direct perception, which is what I was really yearning for. Um, and so had to sort of watch my church going, if you like, because um, it, it, it at best became a um a distraction but at worst it, it frustrated me um and so i needed to find other places to pursue the mystical path and a kind of combo of um my own efforts um through practice things like pilgrimage became quite important um but doing the tradition doing the meditations and um, that were led by particularly non-dual teachers and then reading figures like Eckhart and others, uh, it began to open all up for me. Um, and so it's, it's an eclectic um, mix, but it's, it's, it weaves together into a kind of whole, I think. Mm. I see a spiritual director as well. So, you know, um, being in touch with people that can help you discern is really important. 
you mentioned there Meister Eckhart initially you you talked about the mystical tradition and and Meister Eckhart most often being known as as part of that for someone not familiar with what the mystical tradition might mean how would you describe that anything come to mind mark yeah well i you know i can't it's a good figure to to um use in this context um because for example he would say something like the most important incarnation is not the one that took place 2000 years ago or 1400 years ago for him um it's the one that's occurring now in all living beings and particularly in the human soul and the the incarnation of jesus is just the kind of prototypical manifestation of that that helps us wake up to the fact that the divine is continually being born in creation uh, and that's what creation actually is um so that you know that that that's one contrast you can make from the way that incarnation is normally talked about in churches with the mystical understanding um, that it's a lived reality that's continuous now as before and will be into the future and so becoming uh, alive to what that can possibly mean is the invitation um you know similarly um i can't would say that the ineffable God, the, the abyss, as he puts it, that is the heart of the Godhead, is the abyss that's in the heart of your soul as well. There's an uncreated part in all of us. And that uncreated part in all of us has this complete affinity with the uncreated divine. And so it's another point of direct contact Um oneness it's not even contact it is a unity and again you know he 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 preaches this and talks about this and he discusses it in all sorts of ways and uses analogies biblical references and so on but what does it mean to know this this is the invitation um that is a life's work and so i feel this offers another way of framing what christianity can be about a process of conversion awakening realization um, that um, is appealing, particularly, you know, in an age where the focus is on an individual transformation, which I don't think is wholly bad when it's framed as the individual awakening leads to a connection that we're all one and that that then, that rootedness can precipitate the fruits of um, you know, your attitude towards your neighbour and so on. I feel that a lot of the mistakes that modern Christianity can make are trying to make fruits roots and forgetting what the real roots are. Um, mm. it's, it, it's both um, hard to sustain for those who go to church and so it elicits a lot of guilt and distress, I, um, I, I think. Um, but also it just puts a lot of other people off directly and indirectly um, because it just looks like a moral creed. And for many people, there are far better places to go if you want a moral creed than Western Christianity. So it, I feel that it's not just a kind of nice to have for me, but I'm interested in how it might actually, mystical Christianity that is, might actually be key to the future flourishing of Christianity in the West. Hmm. I, I love it. And maybe that's a great transition into the book. And I was hoping for the listeners that we could 
take a, a bit of a journey through the divine comedy. Um, obviously, in our short period of time, we, we won't do it justice, but maybe it'll be a bit of a taste for, for some people that are not familiar with it. So to begin, who was Dante in maybe just a brief overview of his divine comedy? So Dante was a poet who lived in Florence in the 13th and 14th century. He died in 1321. Sorry, thirteen. Yeah, thirteen twenty-one. That, that's right. The seven hundredth anniversary was last year, and he was well known in Florence, both as a poet and as a political figure. And then, around the year thirteen hundred, about halfway through his life, um, he falls foul of the civil wars which are running right across the Italian peninsula as well as in Florence, and he's exiled from Florence on pain of death and so spends the last 20 or so years of his life cut off from his wellspring he feels um, which had for example been the seabed of his poetry Um, and remember that in those times there wasn't a single Italian language across the whole Italian peninsula there were lots of different dialects spoken and it's because of Dante that the Florentine dialect became the national language in fact Um, he also Though, as well as being cut off from these linguistic sources, he um, lost touch with his family for quite a long time and lost his belongings and possessions as a result as well. So it was really a devastating moment. But that breakdown led to the breakthrough that is the Divine Comedy and is the reason why Dante is now world famous and everybody's heard of him, even if they're not quite sure what the Divine Comedy is about, rather than him just being a significant Um, but merely interesting figure in Italian literature. And the Divine Comedy is this journey that is a descent, an ascent, and then a flourishing of all that it's possible to be human, which Dante traces over the three parts of the Divine Comedy, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso. And it uses the traditional schema of medieval Christianity but remakes it for the modern period because Dante was quite clear. He was aware that something very profound was changing in his times. It wasn't just his personal disaster that he was trying to understand. And he uses, for example, the word modern for the first time. So he's writing for the future. And I think that's why once you find a way into the divine comedy, it, speaks so powerfully to our times now I mean you you can get a sense of that straight away you know he's an individual figure going on a journey that's quite a modern trope Um, he's writing in Italian the vernacular not Latin Um, he's a poet not a priest Um, so all these things actually you start to realize make it modern and he is seminal in my view to bringing older mystical traditions in Christianity into a guys that we can still relate to now. Who were some of the past writers and theologians that influenced Dante's work? Well, he another key feature of his time is that he's born after St. Francis of Assisi and after, in fact, St. Dominic, the founder of the Dominicans as well. And they are just the best known of a huge uprising, a sort of wellspring of mystical... Grouped. Some of them became sects. 
um, you know, like the Cathars. Um, others had an uneasy relationship with the church, but um, coexisted with the more official church. So the Beguines are probably the best known of that group. Um, tens of thousands of women across Europe who either lived in small communities or on the, by themselves and sought a renewed relationship with the divine. And then there were the orders like the Franciscans and the Dominicans that started with an uneasy relationship to the church, but built relationships with the official um, church, with the Pope ratifying their orders and so on. Um, But they always had a kind of parallel relationship with the church nonetheless. And so exercised certain freedoms, even whilst um, they officially were validated by the church. And I think that what that is all about is remaking in the 13th and 14th century traditions that had begun with like the, 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 the monks and nuns, the desert mothers and fathers in the early part of Christianity in the third and fourth centuries, particularly. And then that had had a sort of renewal again in the fifth and sixth with Benedict um, who um, establishes monastic orders as we tend to recognize them. So Christianity has always thrown up these um, groups, individuals that have a tangential relationship with the official church that always, well, either carries the burden or gets enamored with secular authority. Um, You know, the church has got to be in the world, but not of the world, as St. Paul puts it. Um, And so that's always a difficult thing to pull off and maybe means there's always going to be priests and prophets on the one hand and on the other. Um, So, you know, Dante is very much part of this period of the early Renaissance. That's another way of putting it. Um, You know, figures like Giotto and um, others that we remember now as great artists were contemporaries too. Meister Eichhardt as well was a direct contemporary, um, a Dominican who on the one hand related to the church, although of course he was investigated by the church towards the end of his life. But initially he was sent out to speak particularly with the Beguines and other women's orders to see um, whether they were on the right track or not. For the listeners out there, if someone was to go, go on and, and, and look for the book, it is sometimes sold in these three parts of the Inferno purgatory and paradise were they released that way? Were these written at, at different times? Yeah, so he, he begins probably in about 1308 and continues um, releasing cantos and canticles until he dies. And in fact, the last bit of the Paradisa only appeared after his death. Um, the story mm. goes that no one knew where it was. And then in a dream, Dante appeared to one of his sons and told the son where it was. And finally, the whole thing was complete. So you can imagine it being written down and then copied um, and people beginning to get to know that this extraordinary work was appearing and it became popular pretty much straight away. People either reading it because it was written in the vernacular or asking for readings, public readings of it and commentaries and illustrations begin very soon after Dante's death as well. There are many copies of manuscripts that survived from soon after Dante's death. So we know it was a hit Um, You know, it was also another facet of the times was that 
um, this new learning was starting to appear. So Aristotle had come back into the West um, from um, Islamic civilization. And Islam itself was, whilst on the one hand was deemed a threat, um, it too was part of the rejuvenation of the Christian West. So figures like Thomas Aquinas um, before Dante just were also very important in that. And Dante is very influenced by Thomas Aquinas too. Um, yeah, so you can sort of get a sense of Dante, again, riding this kind of wave of uh, enthusiasm and, in, and struggle um, and, and being one of the brilliant synthesizers of what was going on at the time. In the, fir- in the part one of Inferno, there's this concept that you, that you hear of the way down is the way up. Could you speak to that a bit and, and maybe share how you think about that in modern life today? Yeah, it's a profound aspect that comes up straight away because at the beginning of the Divine Comedy, when Dante famously wakes up midway through the course of our life, and he says our life, he, he wants this to be for others, not just for him. Um, he's told by Virgil, who appears quite quickly, his guide through the first two parts, that Virgil's been sent by Beatrice, who's been sent by St. Lucy, the guardian saint of light, who herself has been sent by the Virgin Mary, you know, from the highest heaven. Um, but, The point is that although Dante's told that, he doesn't know what to make of it. He can't feel it and know it throughout the whole of his own person and so can't join with the light um, that he otherwise has to hold on trust is reaching out for him. And, you know, this is such a a common sense, I think, that um, faith is treated as something that you maybe keep your fingers crossed, maybe you believe because others believe maybe you know because it you feel that it somehow holds you um and on occasion is a resting place and on other occasions provides a sense of uplift um and it guides you ethically and so on but dante midway through the course of his life has kind of been doing that but because of the extremity of his crisis he needs to know it in a whole other way And a crucial part of knowing it in a whole other way, which is this mystical journey, is realising how you're cut off from God first. Um, And that means encountering yourself, which I think Dante does in the Inferno when he encounters others. It's quite clear that he can only journey to these dark places when he recognises how the darkness resonates with him. Um, You know, it's not a kind of grand tour of reality where Dante is this kind of objective observer. Um, It's not, it's an immersion into reality that only happens when he participates with these various aspects of reality, the darkness and the light. And, you know, to cut to the chase um, and to put it in a slightly more modern way, as psychotherapists do, actually, um, you can only really know the strength of love, for example, when you've faced the power of hate and realise that love is stronger. Um, You can only know how much you're part of the divine life when you've realized how separate you feel you can become from the divine life and how things like jealousy and anger um these things can cut you off um because you realize the strength of the divine life to hold those contain those um and you know to bring it most directly 
to how we feel it. Um, you know, all, all these traditions, not just Christian, but all these significant spiritual traditions promise that suffering can be transcended, but not because suffering is just bypassed or circumvented, um, but because suffering is engaged, it's gone through and it's understood. And in that understanding, something that transcends the suffering, but also still holds the suffering can be known. And, you know, Dante's, I think his own personal experience um, is then reflected in what he writes in the Divine Comedy um, that communicates that possibility for us as well. Um, you know, it, it follows from, if you're a monotheist, then everything not just depends upon God, but in some way is part of the divine life. Because if something were a separate from the divine life, then it would be another centre of life, which mean would mean you're not a monotheist. Um, mm. So this is, again, the kind of great challenge. But how are we going to understand this, knowing, too, that there's darkness and suffering and death in the world? Um, and this is what the journey reveals to Dante, because you can come up with rational arguments, theodicy and so on, that, you know, can be a bit of use. But this is only really known when you know it through and through in yourself, how these things are possible to hold together. And so, therefore, how divine reality as one can really be the truth of existence. I find that to be beautiful and, and such an important point. It, it connects with a question that I I wanted to ask you, which comes up in this book, but you also have a video on your website that talks about the difference between perception and morality. It was a video on, on these six parables, and it was talking about how we can see these moral messages but maybe the lesson is more about perception could you say more there mark well this is part of my frustration with uh certainly the the churchianity that i've often come across where the parables of jesus which are clearly a distinctive factor of jesus's teaching because there are over 40 of them and no other early christian teachers use parables. Paul certainly doesn't. So they were a distinctive feature of, Christian, of Jesus's teaching that is historical. And um, the question is what to make of that if it's so important to Jesus. And the usual way is to treat them as moral tales. But the trouble with that is that it only works for a handful of them. It works for some of the best known, like the Good Samaritan. But for many of them, it doesn't at all. The parables of the talents, uh, where Jesus says that those who have much more will be given um, or parables like, you know, the unjust judge where there, there had to be, you know, you had to knock on their door all night to get them to open the door and hear your complaint. And most of the parables actually don't work as moral tales. They're either amoral, if not kind of immoral, really. And I think, therefore, that what Jesus is using them as is as ways of disrupting what you think you know taking you almost to a point of crisis, which is then the precursor to realising something that was impossible to know before you'd really had that struggle. And in particular, if you just keep insisting that this is all a, mor a morality tale, um, you don't ever find your way to, I think, the truth of the kingdom. I put it as strongly as that. Um, but the, the parables, I think, were so important to Jesus um, because... They precipitate the shift of perception. So, you know, by way of example, let me take the Good Samaritan. Um, 
the standard way of interpreting it in one way or other is that, um, you know, who is your neighbor and um, the Samaritan is the neighbor to um, uh, the Jew who's in the ditch, whereas the priests, whatever, walk on the other side. And so they don't understand who their neighbor is. And therefore, the implication is that we should, um, you know, regard everybody as our neighbor. Now, there's some truth in that, you know, there's no doubt about it. But I think that's more a fruit to the root that the Good Samaritan is driving at, because it seems to me that the the heart of the story and, and the story comes alive when you realize that um, the Good Samaritan, what he had was a kind of freedom. He was free to respond to the person who was in the ditch, whereas the priest and the Levite that passed by on the other side weren't free. They were bound by their religiosity. And so it feels to me that this is where you get a taste for the kingdom when you realize it's about the liberty to respond freely in life and openly and to give everything away, um, to not be worried about what might happen to you, either religiously because you might become polluted or otherwise. Then you're free to say yes to life, um, which, of course, is what God does. Um, God doesn't say, I want that bit of life, but not something else. Um, And so then I think you've got to something like what perhaps Jesus was driving at when he told this story and what it must have felt like initially. Uh, My goodness, you know, is it possible to really live like this? And the question and the answer is yes. But when you know what life really is about. um, So that comes first. I I love that. I want to take a moment and just read a, a line that I really appreciated in the book. You write, awakening to the fullness of divine life is a matter of complete perception, not perfected behavior. I love that line. And I'm curious if you could speculate a bit. Why do you think we want to latch on maybe or connect to that moral message over maybe a deeper, as you say, a root of how we are seeing the world and seeing ourselves and our perception? Well, look, there's, there's probably a lot of factors involved in that. But since we've been talking about the church, um, the one that comes to my mind perhaps has to do with the way the church regards itself as the guardian or custodian of a kind of package of doctrine that people would say needs illuminating, it needs illustrating, it needs applying to our times. Um, But is this kind of body of insights and convictions and creedal statements um, that are kind of apart from themselves um, rather than seeing the Christian life as one which is primarily to do with your transformation, that then the received wisdom helps illuminate. And so, you know, typically... Um, you know, a a sermon, for example, and again, this is kind of in my experience, um, will illustrate what the creeds mean, what the life of Jesus means. Um, But because it's illustrated in terms of its application, that tends to become a kind of moral illustration. You know, so it becomes a critique of the current political system, um, or it becomes uh, a calling to Um, do certain things in a parish um, or it becomes 
a a reminder to to worship and give thanks for God for all that God has done to us. But again, you know, this is always within those things, which again, I should say, are not bad things in themselves, clearly not. And that's part of the complication. But they all presume um, that there's a separation between me and God or a separation between um, who I am in myself and what I should do um, in my being and my doing. And I think particularly that um, the way that um, training to be a priest is taught um, there's very little emphasis on your personal transformation. There's much more emphasis on what they call formation, which is how you can become a channel for what the church holds. Um, but then that just makes you a kind of passive transmitter of it, maybe very eloquent um, or very, maybe even, you know, very dedicated and dutiful in that. But the sight of the Christian life is kind of in this receive wisdom and how it aims to shape the world rather than in the every individual um, and how it's changing every individual um, in its aliveness. Again, you know, remember Meister Eichhardt's remark about the incarnation. It's not the one that happened 2000 years ago that matters. It's how it's being born in you. Um, and so, you know, coming back to your question, I think that um, it's not, it's, it's only until that's realized and, and then, moreover, it will require changes in the way that people are trained. And, and, and I, I think even in terms of how the church um, operates and organises itself, that a new life won't come back in. I mean, the obvious um, thing that I haven't mentioned yet is the charismatic movement. And I think that whilst personally I'd have a lot of questions about the charismatic movement and, again, the way it tends to play out in practice, Nonetheless, I think that it's onto something because it does emphasize a personal experience, say, of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so to that extent, at least, does put a stress on personal transformation. Um, yeah, so I think that that's part of the reason why the charismatic movements are the ones that are growing, because they are um, understanding that um, both that's where... Christian life really comes alive, but also understand something about the modern world and how unless things do speak to personal transformation, they quickly just become burdensome and, you know, result in internecine warfare and all the things which we see in the church. You've mentioned a, a few times in the conversation this word experience. How do we experience? I'm, I'm curious as a general question connected to this how does one experience if we think about you know figures that have come up previously on the on the podcast i'm thinking of buddha marcus Aurelius's meditations heraclitus they're often there's so much in there about how the world works whether interconnectedness impermanence things like that how does one in, even move closer to experiencing things like that does anything come to mind it's, it's a very important question because and this is where some of my critique of the charismatic movements would come in actually if if you can forgive me making massive generalizations about a phenomenon that is very diverse of course and um, but nonetheless i think that you've got to understand and, and you know when i say experiencing it 
what the nature of that experience is because at the end of the day it's not actually about experiencing it emotionally or experiencing it in peak experiences you know th- those things happen uh, and they can be helpful in a moment um, but really it's about a kind of felt understanding of the ground of your being um, that that may be in terms of emotion quite still um, and quite seemingly um, uninteresting almost um, you know and if you're a bit addicted to highs and lows or if you feel that happiness is basically about being more up than down um, this piece that passes understanding is um, maybe not going to seem that appealing um, let alone understandable um, but I think there is a quality of knowing that I say felt because it's one can try to articulate it but actually, it you know you know it much more, say, in your body or in your experience of life than you do um, in in the words that you try to use to communicate it. You know, it's the felt sense of the sacred that you would have in a holy place. It's not actually that unfamiliar, um, but it rather than just being knowing out there elsewhere in others, it it takes up its home in you, and um, so becomes over time the place in which you live your life and the place to which you can return but then also sustains and feeds what you do um, all day every day and so people get a sense that it's the it's the heart of who you are when you encounter it Um, and so they they feel its allure its profundity Um, and of course you know want more um you know behind the personality lies something else and the personality becomes a way of transmitting that something else rather than the personality being the whole of the individual um you know it's why holy people can be very diverse in in some ways um and very colorful you know someone like desmond tutu was a very charismatic figure a great character to me i've no doubt um but you would guess and then sense that all that was in the service of this wider appreciation of reality that he had. How do you see walking with Dante through the divine comedy, going on this spiritual journey, helping with that? Dante's sense of reality changes completely over the course of the three canticles. And just to, uh, to say, you know, you must read the Paradiso um, because in a way the Inferno and the Purgatorio are just preparations for what unfolds in the Paradiso. It's a great sadness to me that people do try and read the divine comedy, maybe went, make some way through the Inferno, but then stop there. Um, and roughly speaking where Dante knows of his separation and the extent and the depth of that in the Inferno. In the Purgatorio, he begins to realise how connection can be re-established. And so that's, in some ways, it's the the canticle that feels the most like everyday life, um, with the struggles around your vices and virtues, and feeling the generosity of others, but also feeling um, the tragedy of life. Um, it's, It's the kind of mix of things in the Purgatorio. But then in the Paradiso, he gets a more and more profound sense of how 
his gathered sense of himself, which he now has in the darkness and the light, is a kind of microcosm of the macrocosm, which ultimately is the divine life, which he only really fully experiences unfolding before him in the final part of the Paradiso when he enters the Empyrean. Um, yeah, so I hope that begins to at least nudge on into some of the things you're asking about. I mean, another way of putting it is is how his experience of time, I found this very illuminating when I realised that his experience of time shifts very dramatically. So in the Inferno again, um, people he encounters and therefore he realises that he himself are just preoccupied, particularly with the past, um, wanting revenge, um, preoccupied with the wounds of the past, not being able to feel free of them, or they're in fear of the future, what's going to happen. And Dante is taunted by the characters that he meets um, about his own past and his own future. Um, you know, his own past was pretty dark in moments, and certainly his own future was going to be as well. Um, but then in the Purgatorio, people realise there's such a thing as the present moment that's not just the past and the future, but that the present moment can absorb into itself the past and the future, but change at the same time, not just be fixed. Um, and so remake your relationship with the past and open you up to a much wider future that's not just shaped by the past. And that's a very therapeutic um, understanding of things. You know, one way of understanding when people come to suffering, it's because they feel trapped by the past um, and they don't know how to change. Um, and helping people with this felt perception that the past actually belongs in the past and therefore there's a present that's not wholly shaped by what's happened um, is a massive insight. It's easy to say, but to really, again, know it in your person is a huge revelation. And then that begins the process of change. There's a bit of sort of takeoff in that moment, if you like. But then in the Paradiso, Dante realises that there's another experience of time, um, which is, you might call it eternity. It's the, it's the appreciation that time is just the unfolding of various aspects of reality um, and that he becomes freer and freer to move across the past and the future and the present and experience um, all things always. Um, and know, therefore, of himself as a person, but how he's in harmony with all other souls that he meets that is itself just as many, are, are themselves just as many reflections of the divine unity. Um, so that's where real freedom across time and space um, in eternity really becomes possible for him. And again, we get that, you know, in occasional moments, um, it might be in a traumatic moment where, as it were, life flashes before your eyes. And that's one way of understanding that is because in the in the moment of trauma, your kind of tight sense of yourself, if you like, falls away momentarily. Um, people get them in peak, peak experiences, of course, too. But the trouble with peak experiences is that they seem exceptional sort of by definition. Um, and so it, it then becomes quite hard to integrate that into everyday life, even though it gives you a taste of the paradise. And so this kind of steadier journey that Dante articulates for us i think is the way of really becoming established in what can be glimpsed on other occasions how do you think about the role of a guide you know in the story you think of the guides virgil beatrice does that relate 
to our lives here in modern day? Should that be something that we that we think about on our our spiritual path? Yeah, I, I actually increasingly feel it's crucial <laughs> because yeah. if for no other reason than what unfolds to figures like Dante and to other spiritual adepts is both inconceivable to us when we're earlier stages in this unfolding, um, but also it's hard to discern quite what might be going on for you in any particular moment, not least because it can be frightening. It can be anxiety provoking. You know, this is to say the descent is part of the ascent. Um, It's not just a one way ticket um, to spiritual delights. And so having someone that can hold that, have, as it were, faith in what's going on, even when you don't have faith, um, is very, very helpful. Um, you know, again, one immediately has this experience just with trying to grapple with something like the Divine Comedy. You can read it and have understood every word on the page in sense of what it literally means and yet not have hardly at all any intimations of what's really being talked about um and so a guide and you know i was very glad to find someone to help me understand the divine comedy when i was first really starting to try and engage with it who could unfold what was going on even as dante's guides talked to him so that kind of transmission um process which is partly explaining but is as much holding a presence as you're reading these things, is really, really valuable. It seems to be such a, from somebody not super familiar with this work, a a strange but also spectacular work to, to speculate. How do you think Dante came to write this? How did he gain these realizations? Well, no one really knows for sure. Um, my best guess is that the seeming collapse of his life, well, it was a collapse, actually. It was a collapse of his mortal life, um, took him to a low ebb, but also an ebb where he became more porous to wider things. And mm. at first that made him feel immensely vulnerable and frightened. But that's often the precursor to a sense of a deeper reality that you become more aware of because you feel vulnerable. I mean, it came to be called the dark night of the soul by John of the cross, um, which isn't just um, the terror of feeling everything's falling apart, but is the realization that in the heart of that darkness is a kind of presence that you just didn't know of before. That's the beginning of the return to light, but it it's known first in a, a period of darkness. Um, so I think Dante had that experience on the one hand. I suspect he also had quite profound peak experiences of unity with God, partly because that wasn't such a strange thing at the time. Um, a number of his contemporaries write about that as well. And But then Dante's real genius comes in kind of joining that up um, and through his poetic ability, which was already very well very well developed, um, and his engagement with figures like Thomas Aquinas and others, his education, um, he was able to tell a story that I think is partly fiction, but draws also on his direct experience 
Um, but it's fiction in the best sense that it's conveying truths um, that otherwise would be very hard to tell. And moreover, he does it not just for himself to make sense of these experiences, but ones that can address his times. He's very clear that he feels his times are in crisis, not just him, and he wants to address that as well. Um, and hence, when you read it, you know, you won't have the same experience. You you won't certainly won't meet the same characters, as it were, on your descent as he does. Um, but nonetheless, um, you'll recognise the parallels in the most profound sense of your journey and how it relates to his. Well, I love it. This has been great. As our time starts to wind down, I've got just a couple more questions for you, if I could, Mark. One is around navigating uncertainty, darkness, just the unknown path, which kind of opens up the book. And I want to read something you write. It renders any direction of travel unclear. Maybe this is the first real step to wake up to where he actually is lost. That seems to be an important point, And I would love to if you could say more about that, and if there's any thoughts that come up around navigating uncertainty and, and maybe making our way on, on the path through this, the unknown. It's, it's a, another very good question. And, you know, well, the therapist in me responds by saying that uncertainty is much more tolerable when it's shared. And when there's someone who knows what's going on for you in some significant way, so you feel understood, but at the same time isn't actually going on the same journey as you in a, you know, so they're not like your lover, they're not your, um, you're not the parent to the child, you know, the, these kind of relationships that we have that make it very hard to be with but also be separate from um and so i think that um psychotherapy is one response to that um that the therapist would have undergone their own journey and so will know about uncertainty know about fear um as well as how that can change um and so when you're with someone you can not just offer them advice or even words of discernment that help them to see what might be going on for themselves. But this all important felt sense that they're understood. And that might even be saying, look, I don't know what's going on here right now. And I appreciate that you certainly don't know what's going on, but we're going to stick it out um, because I also know that such moments can change. Um, So now it may not be in a, psychotherapeutic relationship that you found that it can certainly be found in other ways um you know it might be through traditions it might be through music it might be through things like pilgrimage um but having ways where you can stay with what's not known rather than just feeling the demand to convert it into something that you can say you understand you know too quickly is really important that's really helpful, Mark. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, a, a general wrap-up question that we ask most guests is something around you know wisdom, how you think about it or define wisdom in daily life today. I think 
going on what Dante comes to realize that it must be something like being able to respond to the moment in a way that allows the moment to respond more to you. So Dante, by the end of the Divine Comedy, doesn't know everything about reality, certainly not about God, but he does know how to be with the divine and to be open more and more to the unfolding into infinity. And that makes him wise. It's not a million miles from Socrates' famous remark about he's wise because he realises the extent of his unknowing. And But it's it's in that sort of responsiveness that wisdom really lies, I think, um, that would be manifesting qualities like openness, um, like, I mean, even you might even say the fruits of the spirit, um, uh, that that is what's so valuable because it it means that we're really on this journey more and more to the realization of reality and um, and our um, our connection with God. Well, beautiful. This has been great. Where would you point listeners interested in uh, learning more about you and, and some of your work in the world? Hey, look, thank you for that, and thanks for the conversation because these things do come out in talking about it, you know, being asked the questions and the say, you know, being pushed that little bit more, um, that is the unfolding too. So I do appreciate the effort that you put into this. Um, but I, I have a website, markvernon.com and try to make links to everything that I do there, but also a YouTube channel. And I'm fairly good on social media like Twitter as well. Um, so hopefully Google picks up a lot of stuff and, uh, and you can find things that I'm doing quite easily. Great. And I came across a podcast that you, a number of episodes on the Divine Comedy. Is that also on, on YouTube? Yeah, so the Divine Comedy book um, began as a series of podcasts. Basically, I began doing a podcast per canto. So there are a 100 podcasts um, as part of a series. Uh, but that was really um, the first step in deepening my effort to try and talk about it not just read it and reflect on it privately but trying to talk about it and so it was a a, a invaluable precursor to what then became the book which in a way was um talking about it all over again um because it's often when you speak something out that you realize oh there's something else to be said here too uh, you know it's the dynamism of the spirit how could it be otherwise and I love it. We're, we're going to link a bunch of stuff in the no- show notes. So I highly encourage everybody to check it out. And again, the book is Dante's Divine Comedy, A Guide for the Spiritual Journey. So Dr. Mark Vernon, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Look, thank you to you. Um, it's been a joy speaking about these things. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.